Proudly Asian, a podcast series that tells bold and proud stories of Asians by Asians. I'm Isabel Wong, a financial journalist who wants to uncover the many Asian stories around us that are waiting to be told. There's never just one way to look at Asians. This podcast will take you through a deep dive into the life stories, struggles, and triumphs of young Asians around the world. On today's episode, we have Gavin Yang, a Canadian-born Hong Kong dining editor who has worked at publications including Hype Beast and Vogue Hong Kong. He's also the co-founder of glassware brand The Fukuokan. He will be talking to us about growing up as a third culture kid and giving cocktails an Asian twist. Welcome to Proudly Asian, Gavin. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's always good to have a chat with you. But just be- before we start the conversation, I remember the first time I met you. It was quite a story. So we met for the first time on a taxi, um, on our way to the location where I was supposed to film um, this amazing house that you, you were working on a story about. And um, basically, the address that we gave our taxi driver was um, a set of bearings. And um, somehow, maybe an hour into the journey the taxi driver got really scared because he was thinking that we were taking him um, to his murder site but of course he didn't die we didn't die and the rest is history yeah it was uh i think he started getting scared when we went off the road past the graveyard and onto like a (laughs) gravel road um yeah but we ended up in a very nice art-filled home that i later passed off as being a resort in Bali. It was quite a place to to get to know you, to meet you, and then later on we became friends. But despite we're friends for quite a few years, I don't think I exactly know everything about you. So this is why I invited you to Browsley Asian to also get to know you better. But let's start off the conversation. Um, Tell us about your background. Who are you? What are you? And where did you grow up? Well, it would be a bit scary if you knew everything about me. (laughs) but to start off with the basics i am a dining editor at tatler dining i have run the gamut of lifestyle magazines in hong kong so i was at hype beast and then i moved to home journal doing interior design and then after that i went to vogue hong kong uh, just to head up their lifestyle content and right before tatler I was working at Soho House, just doing their in-house members content. Uh, Where did I grow up? I was born in Vancouver, but at the age of two, I moved back to, well, my parents moved me back here to Hong Kong with my sister. Uh, We grew up in Discovery Bay, which is like very suburban. I always compare it to an Australian suburb, even though I've never been to Australia. Um, So that was like a very kind of... Uh, walled off, very kind of uh, Stepford Wives situation. Um, it's where a lot of uh, cabin crew, you know, uh, they the pilots and their families, uh, air hostesses, they'll they'll live there because it's close to the airport and it doesn't really feel like Hong Kong. So growing up there was interesting because um, we always felt very separated from the rest of Hong Kong and I always viewed it as a little 
hamlet a little kind of hideaway um but yeah growing up there was a really great place because it's very quiet it's very safe i mean having grown up it's uh you want to explore more you want to move to a more local neighborhood and kind of see what hong kong has to offer so how would you call yourself canadian born cantonese or is there even a way to describe uh well i think a lot of third culture kids will agree with this where if they're in a certain country then they'll identify with where they're from originally uh say i'm from canada which i'll i'll tell other people in hong kong but if i'm in canada then i'll tell people i'm from hong kong so it's kind of it changes depending on where I am. Yeah, which I think is the case for, yeah, like you mentioned, for a lot of third culture kids who maybe grew up here or who were born here but did not grow up here. Like, it's a bit hard for them to have one answer as for where they are from because whatever they say, they're, they're going to get questions. So as you as you just mentioned, I mean, you, you do have Cantonese roots or at least your parents have Cantonese roots. Essentially, you grew up in a Cantonese household, despite um, I, I do know that Discovery Bay is a bit um, far from the main Hong Kong city. So the lifestyle, the, the way that you grew up there could be quite different. So would you say you, you still sort of grew up in a traditional Cantonese household? I would not really say so because I feel like most people, or at least most Hong Kongers who decide to move to Discovery Bay are already quite like Western-minded. Um, you know, they move there because they want to get away from the what people envision Hong Kong to be. So my parents were always quite open-minded in terms of me wanting to pursue something more creative. Um, when I was growing up, I didn't exactly know I wanted to be a professional writer, but they were they never really tried to pressure me or my sister into anything like being a traditional doctor, accountant, engineer, what have you. So um, were there still some traits that you, you noticed about them that were quite traditional? Uh, they were very conscious of their money. Honestly, I don't think it's anything like super Asian. I personally don't like that label when you apply to a very large group of people, but um, you know, I, I think they were very uh, money conscious, like we never really dined out too much unless it was for dim sum or stuff you couldn't really make at home. Um, on top of that, living in Discovery Bay, there's not that many dining restaurants, at least when I was growing up there. Uh, so maybe that's why I'm a dining editor now, because I get to eat all the food. Yeah, because uh, when you're a child, you, you were deprived of <laughs> access to all of that. But growing up, I'm not sure if you got the chance to interact with um, other kids who probably grew up in a more traditional setting. Um, did, what were some of the key differences perhaps you noticed about yourself and maybe other kids in Hong Kong who grew up in the city? I think... Yeah, like I said, growing up in Discovery Bay, it was quite sheltered. Uh, I would only really interact with other people in my primary school, or which was, you know, the the international school there. And once we moved up to secondary school, it was also quite, uh, you know, we we also kind of socialized only within that kind of international school community. So. 
I don't really think that I was exposed too much to other people outside of that bubble. It was very much a bubble, like, you know, waking up, going to school in uh, West Island in Park Fulham and then being shipped off back home. Uh, so, like, when I when I graduated from university and coming back, it was a lot more of a kind of a second discovery of Hong Kong. Like a cultural shock, w- would you say that? Uh, not really a cultural shock. I think just kind of meeting new people and mm. seeing new places, but also within that familiar framework that is Hong Kong. I see. As you progress in your career, you probably uh, met a lot more people from different backgrounds. Did you ever feel like for for the chances that you got to work with or mingle with maybe Hong Kongers who grew up in more local neighborhoods, like did, did you ever feel like you were not part of them or, or how does it make you feel? Uh, I think my Cantonese has never been great. So it's definitely been like a bit of a struggle to get to know more local people. But also I do have many friends who are very local. Um, it runs a whole spectrum, really. There's people who were very westernized, um, but also people who are have kept in touch with local culture, but also were schooled overseas. Um, and... Of course, there's Hong Kong born and bred locals who, you know, they they don't have as much exposure to, uh, like international experience. Yeah, yeah, just because they didn't have the chance to study overseas. But mm. I think in general, Hong Kongs are a very globally minded people. They're very open, mm. very receptive of outside influences, and they know how to kind of put yeah. that together in their own unique way. Yeah, for sure. And um, I mean, on the label of Hong Kongers, I mean, a lot of people would imagine Hong Kongers being straight up Chinese. Of course, um, in Hong Kong, the city, the majority of the population is some sort of Chinese, like from many different backgrounds. But in, in Hong Kong, those who are called Hong Kongers could also have many different appearances that are not Chinese, for example, like Southeast Asians and South Asians who, who were born and raised here. But for Gavin, you eventually also... Um, studied in the UK, in in Japan. Did you study in Canada as well? Yeah, I went to university there. Right. So how are the experiences different um, across these many places? Studying in the UK, that was at a boarding school called Cheltenham College. So we were kind of dropped in a, compared to Hong Kong standards, small town of 100,000 people. Um, but the college itself was one of the more international ones, I'd say. Um, there were Hong Kongers, there were mainland Chinese, there were, uh, you know, Russians, Ukrainians, uh, Indians. So even though it was in this small town setting, it, it was still, you know, it, had, it still had that international outlook. But people there were definitely more uh, more traditional in the sense that it, the boarding school environment does have these very strong traditions where, say, you have chapel every morning, you have these, you do observe Christian religious uh, occasions throughout the year. Um, 
So that is what they sell themselves on. Uh, but I, I would say it was a really great experience growing up in kind of that part of rural England. Um, you know, people mostly end up in London, but being in Cheltenham, it was, I, I was grateful to see another side of, uh, British life. Uh, and then I went to university in Canada in Vancouver where I was born. So that, you know, that West Coast mentality is much more liberal. Vancouver is known as, um, you know, kind of, uh, great city for weed lovers for example <laughs> so people there were you know they are very much into nature they're into um the outdoors hiking biking canoeing skiing what have you um so that was very much about you know being open and trying new things that was you know the large the mentality of the university uh, and then I did exchange in Japan for about four months, which is in hindsight too short. But, um, you know, as as someone who grew up really wanting to experience Japanese culture, um, I went to Kyoto and it, it was pretty much the best place you could go to experience that traditional side. Um, you know, they have a thousand temples. Each temple has its own a uh, festive day throughout the year so there's always something going on and these again these traditions which have been observed for hundreds of years um, that was a really beautiful sight to see mm -hmm. and um, you, you mentioned you went back to Canada to, um, to go to university um, but it was pretty much your your first time um, would it be your first time um, really getting to know the place where you were born yeah, I'd say so because we, me and my sister and my parents would always visit Vancouver over the summers, but we rarely ever spent like prolonged periods of time there. Mm. So, uh, yeah, being able to live there and, you know, again, university was its own bubble because uh, my campus was on this... Uh, little peninsula that's separated from the city by this big park. Um, so there was that bubble where, you know, it would be strange to see anyone above the age of 30. Uh, and that, that age gap would be pretty apparent when you took the bus into the city. Um, but again, it's like, it was a good chance to reconnect with Vancouver and kind of, um, you know, in terms of the Asian community, um, I'd say Vancouver is one of the easier places for someone from Hong Kong to travel and live there mm -hmm. because there's such a huge presence from, especially from Hong Kong as well. Right, right. Because I, I had um, from some Canadian friends that Vancouver has the nickname um, of Honkouver. Is that true? Yeah, and my university, uh, the University of British Columbia, has um, another nickname called the University of a Billion Chinese. <laughs> wow. Then, yeah, there you go. 
<laughs> we get the idea. <laughs> but um, yeah, after going to um, university, you, you obviously you came back to Hong Kong and started your career um, in lifestyle um, journalism. And now you you are a dining editor, a luxury dining editor. So it's only right for me to ask what's your favorite cuisine and was there a dish that really influenced you? I guess my favorite cuisine, well, is it's a toss-up between... Cantonese food just because it's homely and nostalgic and Japanese food just because it's you know it has such a beautiful appreciation of the seasons and fresh produce I think those are very parallel values to Cantonese cuisine as well uh there's no particular dish that I'd say has influenced me but um I think crispy Cantonese chicken is always the best, in my opinion. Right. And um, if you don't mind me asking growing up, um, what would be some of the home-cooked dishes that you would often get? Uh, I don't think anything beats uh, freshly steamed fish, you know, just very simply done with soy sauce, ginger, scallion. Um, it's such a simple, easy-to-prepare dish that can feed a whole group of people but it's so delicious and so nostalgic mm. yeah i think that always brings back memories for me and also uh t- just tomato with scrambled with eggs mm. um i think growing up and being in boarding school that was always the most maybe not emotional but definitely the most uh the dish that would give me the most homesickness just because um, it's it's just so indicative of that Hong Kong flavor. It's just, just very simple. Yeah, and it's just um, so so hearty that dish. Like it, it's always good to have a couple bowls of rice and then pair it with scrambled eggs and tomatoes on on a cold day even. Yeah, I mean, and and on the steamed fish part, I I actually don't like eating fish myself as a confession because I really don't like going through fish bones but I can relate to that sauce you mentioned like normally it's in, in this kind of like um, steamed fish soy sauce and then they would add some hot boiling scallion oil over and you could eat up to like three to four bowls of rice with that kind of sauce. I'm sorry you're missing out on that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. I'll work on it. Maybe eventually I'll, I'll do you guys proud. <laughs> but, um, well, I mean, you, you did mention one of your favorite cuisines is um, Cantonese food, or some people would say Hong Kong food. Do you think there is enough representation of Hong Kong food outside of Asia? And how are Hong Kong food maybe represented differently um, in the countries that you've lived in? Uh, there's definitely enough representation i think just because hong kongers have emigrated to so many different places in the world um i think there was a documentary a few years back about uh general so's chicken Mm. and that was kind of tracking all the different uh chinese eateries across the united states and how this dish has kind of traveled throughout the world um so you know hong kongers hong kongers are very tenacious very uh pioneering bunch in that they can really go anywhere in the world and settle down and put down roots and thrive 
um, as for where I lived and how Hong Kong food was presented, I think in the UK it's um, it's gotten better in recent years how Hong Kong food is done. But where I was studying in Cheltenham, it was still a very small town kind of uh, mentality towards Chinese food where, uh, you know, people, British people want that kind of toned down uh, menu. Yeah. Um, which is probably the same in in most, you know, less urbanized places in, in North America, but... In terms of Vancouver, like we were saying earlier, it's there's so many Chinese people there that a lot of people actually say that Cantonese or Chinese food might actually might actually be better in Vancouver than mm. Hong Kong, um, which is a quite a tall, quite a big claim. But um, I think the jury is still out on that one. Um, yeah. As for Japan. It's still kind of a novelty. Um, you know, people will go to, say, the Chinatown in Yokohama just to experience that very Chinese uh, meal. It's, like, very amped up. Um, and, you know, th they do tone down, like, the spices and stuff for Japanese people's milder mm. palates. But... Um, I think Japan, surprisingly, is one of the places that still has some work to do in terms of Chinese food. Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think I can definitely relate to the experiences in, especially in the UK and also Japan, because in Japan, I think my impression is that Chinese food you have access there is not really very much like divided into different types of Chinese food, right? It's just Chinese food with a Japan twist. And the, the most common food items that you could find in Japan would be like this siomai that looks a bit weird with a green pea on top. Um, I'm not sure if, if I'm right, but this is what I remember. Or like pork buns from convenience stores. Um, as for the UK, I mean, over 10 years ago, I would say the Cantonese food scene was pretty much non-existent there, at least outside of, of London. And um, you would see, you know, restaurants that call themselves Cantonese, but they end up serving like Sichuan dishes or like Chinese dishes from all of China, but nothing Cantonese about it. So I'm quite curious as a bigger population of Hong Kongers moving to the UK, if, if they will sort of um, revive the, the Cantonese food scene. And since we're talking about the UK, just before Lunar New Year, there was this newspaper in the UK that has paired Lunar New Year recipes, namely Chinese dumplings, with joss paper that are traditionally burnt for the dead. Or those are the kind of papers that you would burn at Asian funeral homes to meet the needs of those in the afterlife, um, which sparked horror among Asian readers, of course, um, on the internet. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I think it just speaks to the big gap that still exists with uh, how a lot of British people perceive, you know, Chinese traditions and Chinese customs or any, any non-British um, cultures. But uh, it's, it's, it's a bit disappointing that, you know, in 2022, we're still seeing this kind of stuff crop up on one of the 
biggest newspapers in the UK. Um, but I think what happened is probably the editorial team lacks that kind of uh, that kind of ethnic diversity, and we probably had a creative team that was completely unaware of these traditions. Mm. So I think it's really, really important for for uh, you know those big voices in the media to always have someone on hand to fact check and kind of be able to consult on these yeah on these uh stories that feature other cultures because there there can definitely be a lot of damage done from something that's misrepresented like this yeah that was a good point which tells us about the scene of the british media currently because there, there's still a, a lack of ethnic diversity among media organizations and there's a lack of asian presence on british television as well or even if if for example if for tv drama british tv drama if there were any asian people they would still take on roles that are quite exotic, considered exotic or the minority. And since um, this mistake was made by uh, a British newspaper, which it sort of came as a surprise to me as a journalist, the job for us all is that it is to do your own research pre-interviews or do all the prep work before you even execute. But what it just sounded like to me was like a bunch of people. Obviously, there there, there was a an absence of any Chinese or, or any Chinese-related people there. And then they would just go into the photo studio and be like, hey, guys, let's do a Lunar New Year shoot. Does this paper look like chi- it's Chinese or some fancy Chinese napkin? Okay, let's put it in the shot. That's what it sounded like to me, which you pointed out quite um, aptly as well, because um, we live in the age of the internet and where Google reverse image search also exists and they still make that kind of um, mistake. It's just purely, in my opinion, the journalists were just not doing their job. I'm actually quite impressed that they managed to find Joss paper in London. So I'd quite (laughs) like to, not that I need it anytime soon, but... I would be curious as to where they managed to find that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a good question. Obviously, for those who are working as journalists, it's not always that we get to work on stories or subjects that we are familiar with. And part of the job is really, if you're not familiar with a certain topic or a certain culture, is to just ask the people who are familiar with it, who are from those countries, and just show them and be like, is this okay? This is the most basic they could do. I think, you know, the Chinese people are not lacking in the UK. There's mm. a lot of Chinese people. So I find it quite surprising that they would fail to kind of run this by a Chinese person's eyes first. And also the people they interviewed, like Urchin Chang, the co-founder of Bao London. She is um born and bred Taiwanese person, I think. And I'm sure she probably would have caught that if if they kind of gave it to her for a final check before it went to print. Yeah, yeah. And since we're talking about journalism, of course, you, you have a career of lifestyle, dining journalist. As a journalist, are, are there any goals you hope to achieve with the stories that you tell? Uh, I think a lot of the times lifestyle journalism is viewed as like a very light form of journalism. Um you know, I, I do see where that comes from, but at the same time, 
there is that potential to kind of pull back the curtain on like you said the the whole fuck up that's that went on at the guardian with these joss paper and food photos um you know there is kind of there are those power structures that do extend into food drink interior design fashion um as they say everything is politics and i think as a lifestyle journalist i don't really want to just cover like oh hey what are the next best afternoon teas that you have to try but we have to educate our readers on how to analyze these things that are seeming seemingly innocuous but also do play into certain biases and um certain ways of looking at the world that might benefit some and not others. Yeah. What you just said there really highlights the importance of um, lifestyle journalism because the role, the stories that you, you guys um, tell, most of the time they serve the purpose of like filling the blanks when there are knowledge gaps or like when, when there's, you know, a clear gap in terms of like understandings about different cultures, um, different mediums of artworks. Yeah, I think in Hong Kong, though, it's quite difficult because... As we all know, rent is the be-all and end-all of, of everything in Hong Kong um, from our, for many years, lack of an, an underground art scene, which is growing right now, but very slowly, to the food and drink scene being very geared towards large restaurant groups. Um, there is that kind of commercial consideration whenever you write about something, because um, as opposed to the somewhere like the UK where editorial and commercial are very separate. In Hong Kong, they do tend to be hand in hand. So unfortunately, there is that that uh, aspect of writing about brands where you have to consider the blowback in terms of how it affects mm. your brand because at the end of the day... Um, the company does have to pay rent. So in Hong Kong, there's very much a fine line that you have to tread between the two. Mm, yeah, which sort of resonates with um, what one of our previous guests said because she she also works as a um, dining editor and she did mention sometimes she writes about the food that she does. Um, it's, it's not because what's important, it's not really like whether or not she finds those food delicious or whether or not she likes them. It's, it's somehow about supporting the F&B scene um, in the markets that she covers. But speaking of lifestyle journalism and the importance of it all, was there ever a story that was the most unforgettable for you that you've worked on so far? I mean, this is purely indulgent. But when I was at Vogue, I, I did get the chance to go to Bhutan to stay for four days um, with one of the most luxury resorts there. Um but at the same time, tourism in Bhutan is very considerate of the local culture there by mandate of the government. Um, they're very strict about maintaining their traditional culture. So that was a very enlightening experience just because you, we could see or I could see how this country that's so often uh, mystified by the press, by the travel media. Um, I could see that in person and how 
these people live, like how they live day to day with, with adhering to their very distinct arm of Buddhism. Um, you know, I could kind of uh, place that within the inevitable wave of globalism that's, you know, spreading across the world and how this tiny country is trying to actively stave that off while while working around the very difficult question of how they can benefit from globalization at the same time keeping away its worst influences. Yeah, I do encourage everyone to read that story written by Gavin because he's such a good writer and that story was so so well written and I was so so jealous that you got to go to, go on that trip for for free I mean and I remember you you posted this um, photo of yourself basically you in a bathtub and I was just wondering um, did you have to work on your back muscles before you stepped into the shot <laughs> there's nothing a filter can't fix <laughs> well definitely you'll have to show me the way to a back muscle filter <laughs> But um, here's a fun question for you. I'm sure you get asked a lot. As a lifestyle editor who has worked for Hypebeast and Vogue, is that all you do? Getting free food, getting free trips? Is that all you do? <laughs> uh, pretty much. <laughs> so you just confirmed um, the, the common not-so-misconception then. <laughs> yeah, but I think at the, at the end of the day, I try to bring an, another angle into the story and try to educate uh, readers about something that, you know, there, there, there's always a wider societal and political context to every story. Um, I spoke to uh, the founder of Common Abode, who is a Burmese national living in Hong Kong uh, last year. And that was when, that was not long after the, the Burmese Protest. The Burmese protests started uh, because of the military junta, you know, taking over the government. Um, so, you know, even by way of his one of his restaurants being the only Burmese restaurant in Hong Kong, I thought there is something there that needs to be talked about as, you know, how he's using his restaurant to kind of get the word out, but also again like keeping those commercial those commercial interests in mind and not going too full on about that because at the end of the day some guests just want to go and have a good meal mm -hmm. you know they go there for some escapism and not necessarily to have to confront all the inequalities and atrocities of the world the other topic i would like to talk about is that other than your dining editor career, you turned your lockdown hobby of making cocktails at home into a somewhat serious venture, which basically saw you guest bartending at some of the hippest bars in Hong Kong. And you also tend to make recipes that have a bit of um, Japanese or Asian twists um, to them. What do you think the world should know about Asian liquors? Uh, I think there's definitely a lot of unexplored territory in in terms of cocktails and Asian spirits just because the the genesis of modern cocktail culture came mostly out of um, what they call the golden 
age of cocktails, which was from the late 19th century to uh, around the 50s or 60s. Um, and that was very much a cocktail culture that centered around um, New York and London and specifically like speakeasies during the prohibition or grand hotel bars like the American Bar in London's Savoy Hotel. So it's quite ethnocentric in that despite cocktail culture proliferating throughout the world, there's still a huge focus on that time period and that culture or that particular culture during this, uh, these few intervening decades. Um, so I did write a story about specifically Cantonese spirits uh, because there's very, very little awareness around um, what started off as probably a cottage industry in Hong Kong um, in the late 19th century and kind of reached a boom period in the 50s and 60s. Um, but these spirits are not even based on like gin or whiskey or whatever. Um, they were purely indigenous spirits that used indigenous um, botanicals or indigenous processes. Like there's one called Yokbingsil, which translates to uh, jade ice uh, spirit which uh, garnered its name because it's essentially a grain spirit that is uh, stored with pork fat before it's bottled. Um, so it's kind of like an early form of fat washing, which gives the spirit a very rosy, very dewy and milky flavor. Um, so it's unlike anything else in the world and I think mm. for such unique is it very different from um, maybe sherry as well yeah it's different from anything else mm. I mean the closest parallel there is is probably um, like a form of tequila or mezcal in Mexico where they where they distill it with chicken meat mm. so that kind of takes on its own aroma and its own flavor but I think for such unique spirits in Hong Kong there's very very little modern knowledge around it and even fewer bars that are using them. Mm. And with that do you have any easy cocktail recipe with an Asian twist that you would suggest our audience to try out at home? Well I think everybody loves a Negroni mm. so what I like to make is I use a base of NIP gin which is a locally distilled gin that has a very strong flavor of shoumei tea. Um, so into that I mix an equal measure of Campari, which is essential for any Negroni, and also a half measure of sweet vermouth and another half measure of Ngapei, which is a medicinal fortified spirit, which uses a, uh, a tree bark which has um, many supposed uh, restorative benefits like lowering your blood pressure, um, you know, the list goes on and on. So it's a very bitter, very uh, 
medicinal quality, but when you temper it with the template of a Negroni, which everybody loves, it's an it's a very easy way of getting that kind of ingredient into your into your life. Mm. A medicinal and healthy cocktail. Who doesn't like that? And um, when when do you think will be the best time for people to have this drink? Probably at one of my upcoming guest shifts. So <laughs> can you tell me us on about Instagram, it? yo. <laughs> Where can we find you? G a v i n y. Hit that follow button. Is it um at Gavin Nee? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Um. Yeah, I, I'll definitely try it out. But it's time for us to move on to the next um, micro segment within the episode. And with that, it's time for Rapid Bias. In this segment, I will be asking my guests biased questions they have got asked at some point in life. And also some common biased questions Asians get asked a lot as well. So, Gavin, are you ready? Let's go. Do you even listen to Canto Pop? I do. I actually love Rubber Band. I love Sea uh, All Star. Um, not a fan of Mirror, unfortunately. <laughs> Were you raised entirely in Canada? Uh, I actually spent very little time in Canada. Most of it was in Hong Kong, which my Cantonese accent has fooled many people <laughs> because and... it's so bad. <laughs> what? And how do you not get fat when eating so much? Uh, I do get fat. I just wear very loose clothes to hide it. Do you ever get bored of fine dining? Uh, no, actually. I think it's for me. It's all about the theater of the experience, like just the way the whole process moves, like the three acts of a of a you know of a traditional play. Do you even consider yourself a journalist? It's a very good and very tough question.、Um, I like to refer to myself as a lifestyle editor just to get around that, just to get around answering that question. And do you make cocktails at home every night?、Uh, right now it's the dining ban, but so yes. But normally, you know, I get my fair share of alcohol at tastings, so I do try to avoid it. And is Hong Kong in Japan?、Uh, I think so. <laughs> And they certainly do Konnichiwa in a Cantonese accent, don't they? But that was rapid bias. Now, Gavin, I know that you also started a glassware brand called the Fukuoken. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, it started because me and my girlfriend Daisy, we were just making a lot of cocktails during、um, the first. And second waves of COVID, I guess, and we were trying to find nice cocktail glassware, but we found it really difficult in Hong Kong. So we just decided to start our own brand and try to source really beautiful but appropriately priced、uh, glassware for all the budding cocktail enthusiasts out there like us. And where can we find、um, the Fukuoken? Oh, you can also find it on Instagram at the Fukuoken or thefukuoken dot com. <laughs> or just bug、um, Gavin on Instagram and and get him to deliver you the glasses that you need. Hit But... me up for a special price, yo. <laughs> can can we have a promo code just for our audience? <laughs>、uh, proudly Asian. 
Yay! There you go. Thank you so much, Kevin. But um, finally, before we end the episode, what does it mean to be proudly Cantonese to you? Uh, I think really it just boils down to a love of Hong Kong. Um, you know, there, so much has happened the past three years, but every time I think about leaving, I I find myself thinking about how beautiful Hong Kong is. What a dynamic city, a dynamic people it has. Um, just the mountains, the sea, the food, the will of people to keep on living despite all the adversity that we've had to experience. So I think that's what it means to be, you know, a Cantonese person more than that, a Hong Konger. Thank you so much for being here with us, Gavin. Thank you, Isabel. That's it for this episode of Proudly Asian. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at proudly.asian for more content. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Thanks for tuning in. Signing off for now, I'm Isabel Wong. <laughs>